Most people know that Mondays have long gotten some bad press. For instance, dropping dead from a heart attack is more common on a Monday morning than at any other time. The Dow Jones average fell 508 points on October 19, 1987. I remember that. And it has been since been called Black Monday. The famous outlaw Jesse James was shot and killed as he dusted off a picture at his home in St. Joseph, Missouri on a Monday. President Ronald Reagan was shot in the chest by John Hinckley Jr. outside the Washington Hilton on a Monday. John David, vice president of sales for Ford Motor Company, presented a proposal for a new car called the Etzel on a Monday. The most notorious mass murderer from the past century, Adolf Hitler, was appointed Chancellor of Germany on a Monday. President John F. Kennedy announced there was unmistakable evidence that the Soviet Union was building offensive missile sites in Cuba, and he made that announcement on a Monday. The six-day war between Israel and Egypt began on a Monday. John Dean, former counsel to Richard Nixon, told Senate hearings that Nixon, his staff, campaign aides, and the Justice Department all had conspired to cover up the facts behind the Watergate break-in, and he told them that on a Monday. A Soviet Union acknowledged, the Soviet Union acknowledged that an accident had occurred at its Chernobyl nuclear plant after radiation levels were recorded over Scandinavia, and that happened on a Monday. The Titanic sank to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean on a Monday. The atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan on Monday. And the horrific terrorist bombing at the Boston Marathon happened on a Monday. Bad things happen all the time. And although some think this is just a cultural myth, there is probably some justification for Monday getting a bad rap. The problem is sometimes each morning seems to be another Monday morning because some people seem to have the Monday morning blues all the time. Some people exist in a constant state of serious and manic depression. And to be completely transparent, that has sometimes been me. The primary emphasis in Philippians is on joyfulness. Nineteen times, nineteen different times in this small book, Paul mentions joy, rejoicing, and gladness. This is so relevant because some people feel like life is just something to be endured and not enjoyed. Some people come to church, I see them, and resemble the sad face of a basset hound. And we act as though our favorite rich aunt died and left her entire estate to her pet hamster. That's not a good thing. Sometimes we use the words joyfulness and happiness on an interchangeable basis. We use those words joyfulness and happiness as synonyms, meaning that to us those words are one and the same. But in a technical sense, there is a, a difference, a fundamental difference between them. Joyfulness is different than happiness. Happiness comes from the word happenstance. Happiness comes from the word happenstance, and we have derived the word circumstance from happenstance. That means happiness is contingent on what is happening around us. Happiness is in some sense contingent on our circumstances. And that's the reason sometimes people respond, I'm okay under the circumstances. 
and the appropriate reaction to that response is, and what are you doing under the circumstances? Happiness seems to always be out there in the future. We don't audibleize it, but our attitude is sometimes, I might find happiness if things work out, or I might find happiness if everything comes together for me. Happiness always seems to be futuristic because some people feel that life has to be almost perfect in order for us to enjoy it. Let me reiterate an irrefutable, undeniable fact, and that is, this side of heaven, there is no problem-free existence. Life is full of problems. Job 14, verse 1. Job made this statement. Man who is born of woman, that's an interesting phrase, because I'm not sure how else we could get here other than being born from a woman. Man who is born of woman is a few days, and notice, full of trouble. And quadruple that if we happen to pastor a congregation. Happiness depends on right happenings, but even if things go wrong, God said that we could still have joyfulness. Someone's joyfulness is not contingent on something tangible around us. Someone's joyfulness is not some evasive something out there in the future. But joyfulness is a present state of mind. That's the reason Paul refers to our thinking processes throughout this small book. He uses the word mind a total of ten times. He uses the word think five times, and he also uses the word remember. So that means joyfulness is an internal attitude. It is a state of mind, and it is a definite decision. Notice the definition on the note sheet. Joyfulness is an internal sense of glad contentment. We have chosen, notice, this is something we choose. We have chosen no matter what might be going on around us. People, joyfulness is a choice. We might not be able to choose our circumstances because sometimes circumstances are outside our control. But we can choose our reaction to circumstances and we can choose to be joyful. Joyfulness is an inner sense of glad contentment we have decided on no matter what might be going on around us. In Philippians 1, beginning here at verse 12 and going through verse 26, Paul pulls from his own personal experiences four essentials to a joyful existence. Four of them. If we want joyfulness, then we need these four essentials. But uh, because of time constraints, we're only going to discuss the first essential this morning, and then we can continue this discussion next time. Notice, essential one, Paul had a divine perspective on his circumstances. Paul had a divine perspective, meaning God's perspective on his circumstances. Sometimes perspective can make a huge difference. Dr. Charles Swindoll, a prolific author and pastor, he is 86, almost 87, and still pastoring. And he is also Chancellor Emeritus at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, Dr. Swindoll shared how a co-ed had two problems that are common to most students in college. She had poor grades, and she had virtually no money left. 
She was forced to communicate both those problems to her parents, who she knew would have trouble understanding her situation. So after considerable thought, she used a creative approach to soften the reality of her situation, and she wrote this letter. She said, Dear Mom and Dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after 11th grade to get married, but about a year ago he got a divorce. We've been going together for two months and plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I would like to finish college sometime in the future. But then on the next page, she continued, Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I have written so far in this letter is false. Absolutely none of it is true, but Mom and Dad, it is true I'm getting a C in French, and I flunked my algebra midterm, and it is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. The point is that even bad news can sound like good news if it is seen from a certain perspective. She understood that. So much in life depends on where we are coming from as we face our circumstances. The secret is in perspective. Paul had a divine perspective. Paul was able to see his circumstances as God would see them. He was able to see his circumstances from heaven's perspective. And that puts an entirely different spin on things. Notice verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren... He's addressing this to the ancient church at Philippi. He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Notice Paul said, the things which happened to me. We should read scripture having inquisitive minds, asking questions about the text. So I'm curious, just what did happen to Paul? The biblical account that recorded what Paul had been going through is found in Acts chapters 21 through 28. We don't have time to read that section. Let me sort of summarize some of the what had happened. For almost four years, Paul had been in miserable circumstances. Paul's ambition had been to preach the gospel at Rome. That was his mission. That is what he wanted to do. He had been focused on going to Rome because Rome was the head or the hub of the Roman Empire. Paul determined that if he could build a strong Christian constituency at Rome, then he would have a strategic base there from which he would be able to reach the then known ancient world. In our modern thinking... Paul's original intention was to lease Allegan Stadium, home of the Las Vegas Raiders. I've seen that stadium. It is magnificent, but I'll never get to go there. Uh, tickets, you'll have to take out a loan just to get a ticket. It's expensive. But uh, we would think, well, he's going to have a mass crusade at Rome. No. Uh, he, he's going to rent a huge stadium and uh, like Billy Graham would do and Louis Palau and like Craig Laurie does now. Now, God had a different idea. God decided it would be more beneficial to the Christian cause if Paul went to prison. Now, he didn't check with Paul first on this, uh, but he knew what would be best. So, 
In prison, Paul would be undisturbed. Paul would have more time to write parts of the New Testament. He would have more opportunities in prison to practice personal evangelism. And that's what happened. Let me set up this passage. Paul had been arrested illegally at the Jerusalem temple. The Jewish authorities had Paul arrested because, according to them, he desecrated the temple because he permitted Gentiles to attend. And then the Roman authorities thought he was an Egyptian renegade who was on their most wanted list, so Paul was in trouble with a bunch of people. That means Paul had become the focus of both political and religious persecution. So he remained in prison at Caesarea for two years. He then made an appeal to have his case brought before Caesar, Caesar was the head of the Roman Empire, so he wanted to go to the highest authority. He appealed to Caesar because that was his right as a Roman citizen. He was sent to Rome so that he could make that appeal. And in route there, his ship was wrecked. He was in a shipwreck. And he, uh, for the next three months, he was stranded on an island called Malta, sort of like the skipper and his crew on Gilligan's Island except there was no Ginger and Marianne. I might add, Tina Louise, whose character was Ginger, is the only original cast member left. She's 87. Marianne died not long ago. But after some months, Paul got off this island, and he arrived at Rome. But as he waited his chance to see Caesar, he was placed under house arrest, and he was chained to Roman guards. Paul was not placed in a common prison with other criminals because he had not committed a crime against Roman law per se. The Roman authorities realized there was no real criminal charge brought against him and, and, and couldn't release him before his case was adjudicated. So he was permitted to be a private prisoner in his own quarters. He wasn't permitted to go outside. He was confined to that house. Still, he was there, and that's what had been happening to Paul. He's waiting to appeal his case to Caesar. And that is where he was at the time he authored this letter to Philippi. Even though his present situation was less than ideal, he was joyful and upbeat and optimistic and positive. And he was able to rejoice because he had a divine perspective on his circumstances. He was able to see his situation as God did. Paul was convinced that God was able to use his unfortunate circumstances as a means of perpetuating the gospel. God used Paul's imprisonment as a means of increasing the circulation of the Christian message. Notice what he said in verse 12 again. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, that meant his arrest, uh, imprisonment at Caesarea, his shipwreck, stranded on the island, and now he's house arrest. Those things that happened to him have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Notice that word furtherance. That word translated as furtherance refers to something moving forward, advancing forward in spite of obstacles, dangers, and distractions. It's interesting, it was actually used, that word actually used as an ancient Greek military term. It referred to an army corps of engineers. 
assigned to go ahead of the actual troops and clear away debris from the road and then build additional roads and bridges across rivers. And in going ahead of the actual foot soldiers and constructing roads and bridges, the Army Corps of Engineers made it possible for those soldiers to use those roads and bridges to advance into new territory against the enemy. So get this, Paul said God used him and his imprisonment, this house arrest at Rome, similar to an army corps of engineers helping to advance the gospel into enemy territories. Notice 2 Timothy 2 verses 8 and 9. Paul said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, meaning a descendant from David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Verse 9, for which, meaning my gospel, and Paul preached the good news, the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and then resurrected from the dead. For which the gospel I suffer trouble as an evildoer. Paul said, I'm being punished as if I were evil, an evildoer, but I'm not an evildoer. I've done nothing wrong. Paul did nothing to deserve punishment, but he was being punished as though he had done something wrong. Notice, I suffer trouble as an even evildoer, even to the point of chains. Remember, Paul was still chained, imprisoned. Notice he said, though, but, but the word of God is not changed. Not chained. Paul was chained, but he said the gospel wasn't chained. Even though Paul was incarcerated, even though Paul was restricted in his own personal freedoms, he said the gospel was not restrained. The gospel was not chained. The gospel was still going out. The question is, how? How was it Paul was able to advance the gospel and increase its circulation from his being under house arrest, chained to guards? How was that possible? It's interesting how God facilitated that movement, that increasing movement. Verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paraphrase Paul said, it is obvious, it is apparent to the entire palace guard and anyone else around here that I am incarcerated, I am here under house arrest because of my personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Nothing else. That's why I'm here. Notice the phrase, the whole palace guard. Most commentators argue that this phrase, the whole palace guard, is a reference to Caesar's special soldiers called the Praetorian Guard. Paul is chained to one of these praetorian soldiers on a 24-hour basis. This is how it happened. Those guards rotated in four-hour shifts. So he would be chained to one guard at a time. Just one. One guard at a time each four hours. So at the end of that four hours, the guard he had been chained to would be relieved, and then another guard would step up and he would be chained to that guard. And that meant he was chained on four-hour rotations to six different soldiers per day. But as Paul was chained to these men, he used that as an opportunity to speak to those soldiers about Jesus. That was a strategic move. 
because the Praetorian Guard constituted the crack elite troops of the Roman Empire. Each of those men were personally chosen by Caesar himself. Some of them also served as Caesar's personal bodyguards. Altogether, over time, some 10,000 of those troops existed, and all of them were Italian, I might add. It's interesting that those men were among the highest paid professionals in the entire ancient empire. And according to historians, those guards retired after 12 to 16 years of service to Caesar, and then after their retirement from that, those men were then made influential leaders, holding strategic positions throughout Rome. Please understand, there was not a more strategic group of men on this earth that Paul could have witnessed to. And notice, he would not have had the opportunity to speak to those men had he not been imprisoned at Rome. So once again, God made something good out of something that on the surface seemed not so good. Think through this situation. God permitted Paul to be put into a secured house and not a common traditional prison. Emperor Nero, Caesar Nero, provided him free food and lodging and then arranged to have one of his praetorian guards chained to him in four-hour shifts. Nonstop. So the question is, and who is the real prisoner here? Is it Paul or is it those guards? Imagine being chained to the most significant Christian of all time and being chained to him four hours at a time. Talk about a captive audience. Personally, I would have loved that. Chain me. I hear chain me to Paul. I would have driven him crazy, crazy. I would have asked him so many questions, but um, that would have been fantastic. The praetorian guards stood there, one after another after another, stood there beside him and watched as he wrote parts of the New Testament. Those men stood there and heard him singing and worshiping God. Those men heard him praying and listened to him ask them thought-provoking questions about their spiritual state. So Paul used his imprisonment to speak to these different men about Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul was chained to six different Praetorian guards each day and night. And it wasn't the same six because those men would be rotated in and out of the house. It might be six for two or three days, and then another six, and then another six. That meant Paul potentially, altogether, might have spoken to dozens and dozens of those soldiers over the course of his incarceration. And he made it a point to witness to each of them. And as a result of that Christian witness, some of those praetorian guards accepted Jesus Christ. But it didn't stop there. Because it seems that because those soldiers had such a strategic connection to Caesar's household, some of Emperor Nero's relatives were also being converted as a result of these men. Notice at the conclusion of this letter to Philippi, there are some comments made about this subject. Philippians 4, notice verse 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me, greet you. Verse 22, all the saints greet you. Don't miss this. But especially those, meaning especially those saints, those 
Christians who are of Caesar's household. Do you see what just happened here? Different members of Nero's household also were converted. These members of his household also received Jesus. And the theory is that they became Christians because of the witness from some praetorian guards that had earlier been chained to Paul and that Paul had earlier in and under house arrest brought to Jesus himself. In fact, according to historians, Caesar Nero had his mother, his own mother, his wife, and children executed because each of them had become a Christian. But just before that happened, though, before that execution, those Christian members of Caesar Nero's household also wanted to send greetings to this church at Philippi. They somehow communicated to Paul that as he wrote to the church at Philippi, he was to send them greetings on their behalf. And so he did. Pardon the pun, but can we see how Paul's incarceration caused a chain reaction of conversions? You guys are slow. He's in chains. Okay, he's in chains. And, and there's a chain reaction of people... I, I need new material. I'm sorry. I just this, this is embarrassing. Question: Why did Paul? Why did God permit Paul to be in prison? Why did this have to happen? Remember, at this time he's an older man, probably in his sixties, and he's in poor health. So, what purpose did his imprisonment serve? According to this passage in Philippians chapter one, there are two basic reasons that made this imprisonment a very good thing. Number one, Paul was imprisoned so he would have a chance to witness to certain people he otherwise would have never met. Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest, chained to guards, so he could have opportunities to witness to certain people he otherwise would have never met. Paul witnessing to these praetorian guards would be similar to us witnessing to the top brass at the Pentagon. I can't imagine that we would ever have those opportunities. The reason this all happened is because Paul understood something the average Christian still doesn't get. And that is we are left here on this earth after our salvation in order to be a witness for Jesus Christ. God didn't leave us here on this earth post-salvation just so we could have successful careers and comfortable incomes, and solid marriages, and raise great kids, and accumulate possessions, and do all the recreational things. No, those things are good. But our mission is still the Great Commission. That's our reason for our existence on earth post-salvation. Our main wit our main business is to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. The word witness in one form or another is mentioned 97 times in the New Testament. Probably the most famous passage using that word witness is found in Acts 1 verse 8 where Jesus said to that embryonic nucleus, beginning nucleus of the first church at Jerusalem, he made this statement, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be not you might be, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Examine the book of Acts overall. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes up. 
Jesus goes up, meaning Jesus in Acts 1 ascends into heaven. Then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down. The Spirit comes down, meaning the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost started inhabiting, indwelling Christians on a permanent basis and empowering them to do what God had called them to do. So in Acts 1, Jesus goes up. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down. And in Acts 3, through the end of the book, Christians go out. Christians are going out as witnesses for Jesus Christ because that was their assignment. And people, that hasn't changed. That's still our assignment. It's interesting, the word witness is translated from a Greek word from which we get the word martyr. Martyr, that's ironic. Because the earliest Christians were often martyred. During the first centuries, Christians didn't die from old age on a normal basis. Most earlier Christians expected to die as martyrs after being bold witnesses. That's the reason, people, God sometimes permits us to find ourselves in the middle of difficult and undesirable and unfortunate circumstances so that we might meet someone we would never have met so that we might speak to them about Jesus. One reason the bathroom sink backed up was so that we might meet a plumber from Scottsdale Plumbing and give him an invitation card and invite him to church because if he does attend, he's going to hear about Jesus. One reason we ended up in the hospital overnight might have been so we could witness to a nurse that attended to us. Because these are people we otherwise might have never, ever met. Part of the problem is, though, that in the middle of unfortunate circumstances, in the middle of a crisis, we tend to think only about ourselves and not anyone else. So we start asking questions such as, and why is this happening to me? I don't understand this. This is nonsensical. This is crazy. Why me? And why now? Instead of asking ourselves, what is God wanting to do through me in this situation? What opportunities is God presenting to me in this crisis? Is there someone I should be ministering to? Is there someone I should witness to? An example of that at our previous congregation in Kansas City, and for those of us, those that don't know, I have pastored seven congregations, four of them were church starts, and three of them were turnaround uh, projects or revitalization projects, in some cases maybe resurrection projects might be a better word. Um, in Kansas City, one of our members, a young man, sharp young man, was a victim in an automobile accident. He had his van absolutely totaled. He was unhurt, but his van was trashed. The woman whose car hit his van and totaled his vehicle was physically unharmed, but she was visibly shaken as she waited for the police to come and evaluate the accident. She stood on the sidewalk, and she was emotional and upset, and she cried, in part because she realized she was at fault. So this man from our church went over to her, and even though he was an innocent victim in all this, he tried to console her. And he said, listen, it's all right, it's okay, it's just a car. It can happen to anyone, I just want to make sure you're okay. Are you okay? 
And then suddenly he felt this divine prompting to invite her to church. I mean, this is an awkward thing, you would think. You just had an accident moments ago. He said, do you attend church anywhere? She wasn't expecting that question, but said, no, I, I don't. So he went to his tr the trust twisted wreckage of his vehicle, managed to open up his glove compartment, got out a church brochure, and brought it to her and said, this is the church I attend. Please do me a favor. Please, please be my guest uh, and visit one of our services. Our location is here and our times are here. Please come and see us. He thought he had her because she had just totaled his vehicle and she was probably feeling some very serious guilt. And so he thought he could use that as leverage. And so he invited her and she said, okay, I can try to do that. And that was it, the end of that conversation. But just one Sunday after that, she and her husband came to church. This member introduced them to me, and at that time I knew nothing. I had not heard about this accident. I knew nothing. And so I said, so how do you know one another? And his answer was, oh, we sort of ran into each other recently. That's an understatement. To make a long story short, I made an appointment to see them, and I had the privilege of praying with each of them to receive Jesus, and they became active, faithful members of that congregation. It all happened because someone said to himself, okay, this is not an ideal situation. My van has just been totaled. I'm not sure why God permitted this to happen. But there is someone here I would not have otherwise met, so I'm going to use this as an opportunity as an opportunity to do some pre-evangelism. So taking his cue from Paul and what he did in his unfortunate situation under house arrest, this gentleman invited this woman to church. She heard the gospel, and soon after she accepted Jesus. That's why Paul was there. That's why this young man was there. Second, Paul was imprisoned so that his attempt to evangelize in not so good circumstances, encouraged other Christians in better circumstances to do the same thing. Paul was in prison so that in his attempt to evangelize in his less than desirable circumstances would encourage other Christians on the outside in better circumstances to do the same thing. In one of our previous congregations, one of our members came into the office to actually tell me something good. That is rare. That doesn't happen that often. Nine out of ten phone calls or texts are about negative things, problems. People that come to see me, most often it's about problems. This wasn't. He was all excited. He said, I am so excited. I just prayed with my first person to accept Jesus. I said, that is fantastic. Tell me how it happened. I want details. He said, I'd been talking to this woman at my job about how I became a Christian. And that's a great starting place. He said, I told her how I, I came to Jesus. And I got this track from the Navigators. The Navigators is an international discipling ministry. I got this track from Navigators. I opened it up and I went through it page by page with her. And I got to the end. And at the end, there was this invitation for someone to accept Jesus Christ. There was even a salvation prayer to pray. So I asked her if she wanted to do that. Did she want Jesus? She said yes. And so we bowed our heads together, and we prayed together, and she got saved. He said bringing someone through that experience was almost as exciting as getting saved myself.
And then he stopped and said this, Pastor, why is it more Christians don't do this? And I responded, that's a good question. That's a good question. According to statistical research, more than 95% of all evangelical Christians are never, ever going to bring one other person to Jesus in their entire lifetime. 95%. No preacher from modern times has been quoted more often than has the famous Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon from the 19th century. He pastored London Metropolitan Tabernacle. An amazing, amazing man. And one of his quotations represents a different twist on that sad 95% statistic. He made this statement. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. I agree. That's something to think about. I believe genuine Christians do want others to be saved. Genuine Christians want to witness, but most don't witness because most of them are afraid. Afraid of what someone might think about them, afraid of being made fun of, afraid of losing a friend, afraid of not fitting in, afraid of being rejected, and being afraid to share the gospel and witness seemed to be a common problem at ancient Philippi. So God was using Paul's imprisonment to eliminate that fear and embolden them. Verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, meaning by his imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice it's most of the brethren, not just some, but most of the Christians at Philippi were now emboldened and unafraid to speak about Jesus because Paul had been courageous enough to evangelize those barbaric Roman soldiers chained to him. It seems most of Paul's friends at Philippi were so inspired and so encouraged by his example at prison evangelism that they were made much more confident to witness themselves. Prior to, prior to Paul's imprisonment, there was definite paranoia among the earliest Christians. People were afraid to witness because people were afraid of being arrested. And that was the consequences if someone was caught. But then they heard about Paul, his arrest and subsequent incarceration, and heard how he had witnessed to those praetorian guards, and heard how some of those elite soldiers had become Christians because of his efforts, and how some of them had actually brought the gospel to the household of Caesar, and how that some of Caesar's household had then become Christians. And these people were hearing that how this evangelistic chain reaction was going throughout the ancient Roman Empire. And it got them fired up. Don't forget that during this time Paul was incarcerated in a secure guarded house waiting to see Caesar. He was still upbeat. He was still optimistic. He was still joyful. He was still on top of things. He was still rejoicing. He wasn't down in the mouth. He wasn't depressed as some of us 
probably would have been, he was still committed to getting out the gospel. He had God's perspective on his situation. And he realized his spiritual assignment hadn't changed. The only thing that had changed was his target audience. His target audience prior to incarceration had been the populace at large. Now he's preaching to Roman Praetorian guards. So the other Christians that heard about Paul's situation decided if he could share the gospel under house arrest and under those conditions, then they could do the same thing on the outside in freedom. That meant Paul's example encouraged them to communicate the gospel in boldness and to be completely unafraid of the consequences. This has happened often. Someone tells me about just losing someone close to them, a relative, a close friend, and someone says, Pastor, I just lost this person. And my initial almost knee-jerk reaction is to question them. Did he know Jesus? Did she have Jesus? Was he a Christian? Was she saved? That's the response I have. Because nothing matters more than that. And most often, the response I receive is, I don't know. I don't know. And I want to continue to probe, <clears throat> but this person is grieving a significant loss, and it isn't appropriate at that time to add to that grief, so I remain silent, except to say, I am so sorry. But on the inside, I want to counter that I don't know response. I want to scream, why don't you know? Why don't you know where this person is? Was it because this person professed Christianity but never demonstrated adequate evidence to support that profession? So there's a big question mark. That's a legitimate I don't know response. I understand that one. But was that I don't know because you never had a spiritual conversation with that person? Was that I don't know because you never actually inquired about the state of their soul? Was that I don't know because you never attempted to witness to them? I would suggest that more often than not, those are the reasons someone doesn't know about the state of their friend or relative that just died. It's because people are afraid to say something. I admit I am afraid. I am afraid about what could happen to someone if I don't say something. To quote Mr. Spurgeon again, he said, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one of them go there unwarned, unwarned, and unprayed for. I have gone to extraordinary lengths to share the gospel. I can remember once driving six hours. I was given 30 minutes to see a man in prison. A man I'd never met the father of one of our members. 
I used that 30 minutes to share Christ with him. He didn't receive Christ then, but he did afterwards. I've, I made a special trip to fly 1,800 miles for one purpose, primarily to see a neighbor friend of ours that meant so much to me. He hired me in the sixth grade. I worked for him junior high and high school. An amazing man. And I had to know he was in his 90s. I had to know he was going to heaven. I will go to extraordinary lengths to see someone come to Christ. Why? Because there is nothing, there is nothing more important than someone's salvation. Jesus himself said, Mark 8 verse 36, he said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and then loses his soul? That's almost a rhetorical question. And if we care about someone, if we are sincere and care about someone, then we must say something. We cannot remain silent. Let me close. In Ethiopia, there was a church called the Masoret Christos Church. That church consisted of a small number of different congregations in a tight geographical region of Ethiopia. In 1982, the Marxist government closed those congregations. I might add to those on the left that don't understand, that's what Marxism does. It is a godless system. The government closed those congregations, arrested the pastors of those congregations, and put them in prison. Word got out how those imprisoned men had to endure unbelievable harsh conditions. Those men were tortured. Word got out how those men had maintained a strong commitment to Jesus in spite of all of that and a refusal to renounce him. And how those pastors, as Paul did, continued to witness and evangelize from inside prison. And word got out about these men bringing inmates to Christ. And that just encouraged the church. The people on the outside started to act as the Christians at Philippi did. And started to be bold witnesses for Jesus. The result was that after those pastors had been incarcerated, the church was forced to go underground and started meeting in secret in homes. And no one knew the state of the church as a whole. No one knew what was happening. But after the overthrow of the Marxist government in 1991, this church resurfaced to discover that the courageous example of those pastors that had set that example in prison and were relentless about sharing Jesus those men had so encouraged the membership on the outside to evangelize. That church had grown in less than a decade, meeting in secret because of intense persecution. That church had grown from 5,000 members to more than 50,000 members. Someone said a Christian must keep the faith, but not to himself. People, don't be guilty of the sin of silence. Let's bow our heads. If you're here this morning, and maybe you've not heard anything like this, maybe this is new, and maybe you're not certain that you are a Christian, maybe there are doubts, maybe there are questions, you don't know 
with certainty that you have a relationship to Jesus. You don't know that you have salvation and forgiveness. You don't know. But you would like to know. I would beg you after this service, see me on the way out. And tell me, Pastor, I'd like to get together. We'll, we'll make an appointment soon, very soon. And I can sit down with you and show you from Scripture how you can have Jesus and how you can know it. How He can change your life and make a difference. I beg you to do that. I, I plead with you to do that. But for the rest of us who are Christians, we're confident of our salvation. What are you doing with it? Are you telling anyone? Are you sharing that with anyone? The people you know, the people that matter to you, the people that you love and care about, have they all heard about Jesus from you? You don't even have to have a course in personal evangelism. Just tell them how you came to Christ. Tell your story. Tell them what Jesus means to you. That's all you need to do. And if you need help, you can bring me with you or bring them to me. I'd be happy and honored to help. But Christians, we need to get serious. There is no church, to my knowledge, anywhere near here that is doing what God has called them to do. Ours isn't. None of the churches are. We're not really reaching people. We're not really evangelizing. We're not sharing the gospel. We should be ashamed of ourselves. I pray that today you will make a commitment to change that. Father, you've heard what I've said. I hope it's made a difference in our thinking. Um... There's a reason we go through circumstances and unfortunate situations. Help us to know that uh, we're to consider others during that time. Is there someone that we should minister to? Is there someone we should share Jesus with? Because more often than not, there is. Help us to be obedient to you when that happens, to take advantage of those opportunities. When we meet people we would otherwise never have met. And what we do in sharing Jesus might encourage others to do the same. So, Father, I just pray that you'll use this message to speak to our hearts, make a difference in each of us. And I thank you, and I praise you. And I ask it all in the name of your Son. Amen.